Every morning, when we all head out to work, our fellow urban colleagues head out as well. Look around you, who do you see? In our city, Bengaluru, it's the IT engineers packed like sardines in office taxis, school buses bursting with children, men and women balancing lunchboxes and bags on their bikes as they aggressively snake through stalling traffic. When we think of the modern urban worker, we tend to picture a white-collar worker. People with steady jobs in offices, with dedicated workspaces arranged in rows in shiny buildings. People with formal jobs, assured work, with salaries, benefits and social security. But four out of five urban workers in India look very different from this image. They belong to what is called the informal sector. They are everyone from workers at the end of manufacturing production lines, to self-employed street food hawkers, vegetable vendors with their pushcarts, dhobis, maids, electricians, beauticians, plumbers, your Kirana shop boy. In India, most social schemes, programs and interventions are pretty much aiming to affect the lives of this group of people because they make up a big share of our country's poor and vulnerable. So what's life really like for the millions of informal workers? And what will it take to improve their lives and livelihoods? Hi, I'm Radhika Vishwanathan. And I'm Samyukta Varma. And we're the hosts of In the Field, a show about India and development, supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. In each episode, we attempt to start a conversation about development work as it happens, ask the people working at the heart of it how it influences social progress, and figure out what we're all supposed to do. In this episode, we're learning about the huge population of workers who, much like us, put in long, hard days of work, but unlike us, lead lives that are marked by insecurity. Think of the people who have left their villages to find work at the end of massive global supply chains. Such as the men in small rooms in the gullies of our cities who embroider fabric, or the women who roll agarbattis in their homes. They account for 40% of India's manufactured export and much of India's competitive advantage. But they are also those who provide essential goods and services for the city itself, especially for the urban middle and upper classes. They are often economically vulnerable, living on daily wages and jobs that can mostly be traced back to the centuries-old occupations of their castes or communities. Like the Istriwala, or the ironing lady at the end of your lane, the Kabadiwala, or the guy who collects your waste, office chaiwala, or the Jutawala, the cobbler. In the 1970s, the International Labour Organization, the ILO, tried to measure the size of informal economies in developing countries. At the time, it was thought that these traditionally operating activities that were separate of formal enterprises were special features of poor economies. They believed that informality was a transient phenomena that would ultimately shrink or be absorbed into the formal economy. Large formally regulated industries were supposed to eventually bring informal workers into their fold. Today, with globalization, industries leverage cheap contractual labor in developing countries, expanding our understanding of the informal sector. More jobs are short-term, contractual, can be cancelled at a moment's notice, and contain fewer and fewer attached benefits. And we're all quite familiar with this. The informalization of jobs seems to be the way most jobs are headed. 
However, for a poor informal worker, the lived experience of this is very different. In India, one of the most famous organizations working for unorganized workers is SEVA. Set up in 1972 in Gujarat by the inspiring Ila Bain Bhatt, SEVA is a pioneering union for informal women workers. Nearly 50 years on, SEVA is a lifeline that continues to transform the lives of scores of women. Here's one woman speaking about her experience to Gramvani, a social technology company that aims to reverse the flow of information through community radio. When I got married, I would stay at home. I used to be in Parda all the time. Even when going to the bathroom, we would cover our faces. With Seva, now we go to the meetings and we're more confident. Earlier, we couldn't even speak. Seva encouraged us to look ahead, to plan ahead. I opened a Kirana shop with Seva's help, the only one in the locality, and it's running really well. With the second loan, I bought a sewing machine. I learned how to stitch, and now I employ 20 women. All these women used to work as maids, but now they've become tailors. They can stitch shirts, pants, etc. We want to grow now. To learn more about the challenges urban informal working classes face today, we met with Gayatri Vasudevan, the founder of LabourNet, an organization whose main work is to skill and improve the livelihoods of informal workers. In a country like India, uh, this number is as, uh, and I'm just quoting NSS statistics here, if you look at the national sample survey, it's 83%. It's huge, but it has come down. You know, in the 1990s, they said it was 93%. Her practical definition of the informal sector is simpler to understand. Very simple. Somebody who has a monthly wage and has access to social security is for us formal. Somebody who has a, a lack of a monthly wage uh, and lack of... So I, I, the reason I'm using both those, lack of monthly wage and lack of so access to social security, is you have to measure on both counts. For example, I may be uh, rubber manufacturing, so you know I'm, I'm producing cycle tires. I'm on contract labor, so I get a monthly wage, but my monthly wage is calculated on a daily wage basis. So how much I produce every day is, and my payment is done on a monthly wage. Um, I have access to partial social security, so I may not be eligible to PF and ESI, uh, but I would get accident insurance. Or I may be eligible to pay an ESI because I'm working on a contract. So the whole temp workforce which you have falls under that uh, category. Mm-hmm. Then you have those who are 100% informal, right? Uh, so would you call a domestic worker informal? She gets a monthly wage. There's no problems, but she is informal because she doesn't fall into a structure of an employer-employee relationship. Um, let's take another example, construction worker. will never get a monthly wage. will always get a daily wage aggregated at best to a weekly wage so uh, so um, you know those are the kinds of matrices that we are looking at to say what is it that we want Gayatri's definition considers two aspects the presence of a regular paycheck and of a safety net in the form of some kind of welfare or benefit assurance the absence of both make a worker informal But by her definition, the partial presence of either might also make a worker informal. This is because informal and formal jobs are not clean and separate categories. But any job can actually fall on the spectrum between the two ends. 
More and more, we're also seeing the informalization of formal work. Here's another clip from Gramvani, where Akhtar, a factory worker who's been employed for 12 years at the same place, hasn't enjoyed job security because he worked on an 11-month contract where he was regularly fired and rehired every year until this year. अरे मैं कंपनी में काम कर रहा था मैंने चेकर का काम कर रहा था हमने उस फैक्ट्री में जैसे एक साल काम करते हैं 11 महीना फिर उसके बाद ब्रेक लगा देता है फिर ज्वाइनिंग करता है लगभग 10 12 साल से We ask Gayatri what according to her are the three biggest challenges that affect informal workers looking to improve their lives The first is self esteem One major social problem which is there is these are not considered to be good jobs so you 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 they arrive into the job as as saying that hey listen at some level i'm not in a good position so good is is a loaded word the moment you're not good you automatically have significant problems of self esteem uh would you stand up and you know be able to articulate what you need uh, for for example somebody who is in in um, in english educated has gone to iim will articulate much better than someone who's doing distance education mba both are doing mba but the the, the other person will have the confidence to talk it through to to bandy ideas the idea may not be the cleverest but there here this person is coming with a handicap of saying hey listen i'm never going to be that person Second, it's a double whammy if you're a woman. India is a very gender segregated country. You look at all the education statistics, girls are passing exams, 10th standard exams well. Are they in the workforce? Somewhere they're not in the workforce. So what's preventing them to go into the workforce? So what's what's preventing them to go into full time? Do we have structures for them to do part-time work? Uh is it wrong for them to opt for childcare? So I'm not saying they should remain in the four right four uh, you know within the four uh, walls but at the same time one has to recognize that there are problems that they face and therefore what kind of support can you do Gayatri believes that women shouldn't necessarily be discouraged from home based work Women working from home form the majority of informal workers in India and all household work is still largely a woman's responsibility if if home based work is the solution for women because we cannot provide uh you know good child care facilities good old age facilities which is the economic role that i'm performing as a woman uh you know i'm a domestic worker i'm able to work one hour two hours but i'm taking care of the children i'm taking care of my husband's parents uh i'm cooking I'm cleaning. There's an economic value and that that time value I think with one needs to recognize. So I personally feel home based work should not be completely taken off in a country like India where we cannot give the structures structural support that women need. Third she says is that informal workers don't get many chances to build their skills. So the reskilling element is so important in this day and age. If I I as a formal sector worker have the ability to reskill. I as an educated person have the ability. You have company L&D. You have access to educational material on which you'll reskill. But what will somebody in this in this group do? 
And ultimately, informal workers are crippled by how the better off see them. They suffer because they are perceived of as beneficiaries and because there is a reluctance to take the same risks to support them. For me, I'm seen as subsidy. I'm, I am capable of taking subsidy. I'm reviled for keeping subsidy, but I'm an important vote bank. Um, but for a formal, I, I'm capable of taking risks. So I get venture capital. I get uh, access to loans to study more, to reskill myself and get the knowledge that I require. I get access to set up business because I, I, I've taken, I have the self-esteem, I have the reskilling capacity, I have the capacity to reinvent myself. But here the same thing will be looked at differently. To better illuminate ourselves on the struggles of informal workers, we look to a group that we all know well. Greening cities, making them more climate resilient, is right now one of the biggest global challenges. Our cities are huge. They're also bursting at the seams with the waste we produce. Indian cities alone discard 250,000 tons of solid waste every day. So who's leading the cleanup campaign? The waste picker is. An informal worker, often thought of as a beggar or a scavenger. Waste pickers are a group of itinerant people who collect waste from across the city, sort it and then sell it to a waste buyer. Someone who buys recyclable sorted waste and sells it up the supply chain to recycling units. Waste pickers are amongst the poorest working class groups in any city and are rarely recognized for the important role they play in creating value from the waste generated by others. And although we may see them as unskilled labor, most are able to sort, identify and distinguish between 34 to 38 varieties of plastic simply by look and feel. With rapid urbanization and bad city planning fueling garbage crisis after crisis, waste pickers across the world are organizing themselves. And some cities are finally promoting the virtuous cycle that comes with integrating waste pickers, the world's recyclers, into municipal solid waste management services. This is a big step in legitimizing the work of a poor underclass and changing their status into that of an entrepreneurial working class. A leading Indian voice in this transformation is the formidable Nalini Shekhar. Way back in 1993, Nalini was instrumental in setting up a now well-known union for waste pickers in Pune. The Kagar Kach Patra Kashtakari Panchayat, or KKPKP, that brings together waste pickers, waste buyers, collectors and other informal recyclers. These groups recover, collect, sort and sell scrap material, anything from cardboard to paper to plastics, metal and glass. Waste pickers had never seen themselves as laborers, right? I mean, they, they always perceived that they are working in uh, unclean uh, place, they are not clean, they are uh, dirty, they are from Dalit. That is the recognition they had. They, they had never seen themselves as workers. Um, so the identities they had was all different, um, you know, what the people perceived them. It was never about what they perceived, it's people perceived them. Seva had done some union work around uh, waste pickers, but that's a broad uh, union where different, different trades are there. So you can't really look at that as the first one. In 93-94, we did the first union in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Pune. So the reason for you doing the union is that people should understand that they are 
workers base because themselves should accept that they are workers others should, should look at them as workers i'm 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 one of the founders of it so that time we had lot of issues with with the registration also because there's no employee employer relationship in a trade union needs that right i'm talking about 94 now it's a different scenario today kkpkp has over 9000 members and 80% of their members are women or from lower castes and communities they have identity cards given to them by the city have access to some form of social security financial support and benefits and their efforts towards representation and access to waste across the city has been tremendous resulting in the formation of swatch in 2005 a wholly owned worker cooperative that was awarded the door to door collection contract by the pune municipal corporation for waste collection in 2016 2688 waste pickers under swatch offered this service to nearly half a million households across the city. When Nalini moved to Bangalore, she helped set up Hasiruddala or Green Force working with the waste pickers of this city. Last year, Hasiruddala won an environmental award from the Karnataka government, something that is unheard of for a labor group. So what exactly has Hasiruddala done? Just to sit back and think 10 years what has happened is amazing. in terms of uh, we started working in bangalore and saying that they are saving you so much 84 crores what are you done for them give them an occupational id card so finally it happened with the logo of the city signature of the commissioner you know and uh, and uh, that became a law now 2016 law says they have to do it so over a period of time we have worked nationally also and now it has happened nationally so legally now they are recognized as a very important uh, cont- uh, contributors in solid waste management and 2016 law defines who they are and very clearly states that all the decentralized waste management uh, system should be given to them to manage hasirudala was able to do this because they crunched the numbers and were able to show that every day 15000 waste pickers take 1050 tons of waste off the city's hands amounting to 84 crore rupees Today 7500 waste pickers have ID cards issued to them by the city which protect them from harassment and allow them to work. They also worked on the perception problem. So using that word entrepreneurs because Bangalore is a full of entrepreneurial uh, people and there's a lot of you know environment for entrepreneurialship. And uh, so I said they are silent environmentalists because they are because they are helping with the recycling of so much and uh, saving the virgin material so those are some of the language that we started using with waste pickers despite these achievements waste pickers still lead precarious lives let's not forget that they work in a cash economy and survive on daily wages and their livelihood is very sensitive to economic volatility such as when the price of crude oil dropped in 2014 which brought down the demand for recycled plastic or demonetization which severely affected the day-to-day functioning of these waste pickers or even the overhauling of the goods and services tax so when that kind of volatility is there in the rates like 2000 we have data from 2014 to now so what pet i'm just uh, giving you one example of pet which we were selling at wholesale at 43 today when the gst hit the road it was 18 rupees now i think it's gone up to 24 20 uh, 25 so once it comes down it never goes back right i mean so uh, once it goes down who is mostly hit it is the bottom of the pyramid the waste pickers right the people who are making money in between will never uh, give up their uh, 
you know, profits. During the worst stages of the 2015 plastic price crunch, Hasirudala found that the children of waste pickers were suffering from malnourishment because families were cutting down on essential foods like milk. In response, they trained waste pickers to grow mushrooms in their homes as a way to supplement their diets with a cheap, protein-rich food. You're listening to the title song of a show called Dastane Nayandanahalli, a radio show hosted by Siddiq and his colleagues, all waste picker radio jockeys. The show is broadcast daily across Bangalore. And originally hosted in Kannada, the local language, it became so popular that it is now hosted in Hindi and a number of other languages. I used to be a truck driver. I used to transport the plastic to the waste go-down. That's where I learned how plastic is sorted, where it goes. I learned everything by observing. Then in that go-down, I met my wife, who also worked there. We had a love marriage and she took me for meetings in Majestic at the Bosco Church. And that was the first time I got to know the real life of a waste picker. Can you imagine what it's like? How they live? What they do? How they eat? And what timings they work? When they sleep? All their problems. We began speaking about all these things. And then they asked me to host a show. Groups like Hasirudala have changed the waste economy in three important ways. Firstly, they have advocated for waste pickers to have an identity, and they have become a group that is now recognized by the state. Secondly, they have also been able to get them access to benefits and economic security. And thirdly, they have been able to integrate them into the formal waste economy at the national policy level. Waste pickers are now included in the 2016 Solid Waste Management Rules, which say they should be included in waste management services at the city level. But while the work of organizations like these has been commendable, how does the government see this particular group of people? Not many people know that India is a great waste recycling nation. According to a recent study, 900,000 metric tons of PET, or polyethylene terephthalate, was produced between 2015 and 2016. And 90% of it was recycled. Only 10% ended up in a landfill. India is second only to China in this. India outperformed Japan, Europe, where less than half was recycled, and the US where only a third was recycled. Just how significant is that? Here's a horrifying statistic to put it all into perspective. Worldwide, we use a million plastic bottles in one minute. A million plastic bottles in one minute. So the work that waste pickers do is also globally important because recycling is the cheapest and fastest way to reduce carbon emissions. So how does the state see waste pickers? And what policies are in place for them, their welfare and the contribution they make to the environment? We spoke to Kaveri Gill, a professor at Shivnadar University who studied the plastic waste economy and its workers. One of the main things she's concerned by is the more recent push towards privatization of urban waste management and its impact on waste pickers. While waste pickers have been integrated into the rules, 
What's unclear is what will happen when private partnerships come into play. How will waste pickers be protected during this transition? So I think that they are going to be absorbed, but the problem with having this private sector come in and adopting a technology that is very much labor displacing is that now, they, firstly, the jobs will be for fewer numbers because there is going to be a diversion of waste, whether from landfills or from anywhere else, to these waste-to-energy plants. And they particularly would need the more lucrative ends of the waste, for example, plastic goods that you know, can be recycled or paper or everything because they are also combustible. Kaveri also points out that the larger problem of social inequality is still to be addressed. So there is going to be a displacement of labor in that sense. And on the other front, you know, I would, I'd be interested to see what are the benefits because if the argument is that, you know, the, the present work is so unpleasant and so disgraceful and, you know, if you look at the documents, it's all about providing them gloves and protection and all of this. But if it is really the case that, you know, it's the betterment of this lot that is what is desired, then I think policy has to address some more uncomfortable questions about caste and waste work. You know, so we are talking about more transformative policy. And I say caste, but it could be minority communities. It could be, you know, Bangladeshi migrants and so on and so forth. Uh, but that question needs to be addressed. And I also feel the question of urban poverty. Uh, and to put this in the wider context. Her position is cautionary and notes that the broader question of subsidizing and underwriting the risks of letting private sector players enter the waste management sector needs to be balanced with the welfare of this economically insecure group. Most towns have limited bandwidth and capabilities to take on the larger challenges. And while civil society organizations have been doing a great job, their reach is really quite small when compared to the scale of the problem. And ultimately, it is the state's role to catch people before they fall through the cracks. In a sense, this entire setup is, comp- and by setup I mean the informal waste economy, was compensating for the market failing them in a big way. And so, where the state would have come in if it had meant to uh, was that you know you provide them with you know you provide them with finance. I mean, we are talking about entrepreneurship, and you know. Um, uh, the government in power is actually saying, you know, they are relying on the informal sector to make jobs and they are calling them entrepreneurs. But then if that is the case for a set of people, and we are still talking about 92-93% of India's economy, then what you need to do is, like you are underwriting risk for the private sector in a major way, uh, you, the least you can do here is, you know, you provide them with some loan, you provide them with land. And quite contrary to that, you are, you know, undertaking certain policy actions that are completely devastating them. Both Gayatri and Kaveri talk about the willingness to take on risk. The government is willing to underwrite risks for private sector companies with waste management solutions. But are they just as forthcoming about taking on the risks that would enable waste pickers to actually become entrepreneurs? Let's take a moment to go back to Gayatri. Her work is about the long haul because it takes a long time to build economic security for whole households to move up. There has been a lot of interesting work in supporting the upskilling of informal workers, especially by CSR. So there are two uh, groups. First are those who are first generation CSR. So they're first time looking at it and they want quick solutions. So they think that if I spend the money, I need the return. 
so the return is a is a tangible return so structural issues they find it difficult to comprehend but the social backbone of it is not really something that you are able to explain the second uh, problem the second group of people are those who are um, who are veterans at it so they have faced a disillusionment so they like i've been there done that it hasn't worked and i'll put measures which are harder so uh, in the sense in that sense they they are so hardened that they are not able to see that same thing can be done differently the change is slower and one has to walk the talk so innovation in in csr has become lower uh, while the talk has become big the social backbone she refers to is about long term support of figuring out a way to get a family out of economic distress Gayatri talks about CSR funding but what she says has larger meaning for all of us the state the private sector philanthropy citizens and workers what we have learned is that every player has a particular responsibility and no one alone will be able to fully address the problem so it's not only the CSR professional it's obviously it's a direct uh, person that you want to influence or the government policy but it is every single person because you are the employer so it's the view which i think is the most important what's your what's the lens with which you're going to look at the problem and that's the end of the show thank you for listening thanks to kaveri gill nalini shekhar gayatri vasudevan and siddiq bhai a special mention to pinky chandran and usha from radioactive to hasirudala and everyone at levanet and the team at gramvani Do check out Radioactive and Gramvani. They both produce some excellent programs. You can listen to them online. In the Field is produced and hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. Priya Desai is our associate producer and she's our first listener, sense maker and sometimes lifeboat. Our music was made by Hollis Coates. Third Eye Recording Studio does the sound and Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies helps us do all of the above. So until next time, subscribe for updates on our website and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We are at In the Field India. <laughs>